This is your host, Shashank Shekhar, and welcome to another episode of Shashank Redemption. Welcome everyone. I have as my special guest today, and I'm uh, so glad uh, to have Gary Beasley as, as our special guest. He is the CEO and co-founder uh, at Roofstock, and I've of course seen Roofstock's stock rising, so to say, over, <laughs> over the last last few years. But I've also been fortunate enough to know Gary a little bit at the personal level. I've, I've had the honor of talking to him a few times, and I've realized not just how well Roofstock is doing, but the amazing amount of leadership that, that Gary brings to the team in terms of helping them where they are. So we will be talking about his leadership, his entrepreneurial journey, some of the lessons he has learned, and also, of course, the story of Roofstock. So thank you, Gary, being uh, to come uh, on this podcast with me and, and share some of your insights. Absolutely, uh, Shushank. Great to be here and appreciate you having me on. Sure. So let's let's start with uh, with Roofstock. Is that how did it come about? It's it's an interesting concept that uh, I've been in the mortgage industry, as you know, and the real estate industry for a while. But um, I I just this is something that um, I feel there was a huge need or huge uh, space in the market for, but we did not see any solutions coming out. So um, how did you come up with an idea of building something like this? Sure. So uh, as you know. From our prior conversations, back in the really the Great Recession, so between sort of 2009, 2011, some partners and I started buying rental homes as investments. And we, we, what we realized then was um, there's some new technologies that have emerged that's going to make this asset class more accessible to investors, specifically cloud and mobile computing. Felt like it could transform this industry from being just a pure sort of mom and pop industry to one that actually could could attract um, institutional investors at scale and retail investors much more efficiently. So, so, so what what we ended up doing was building a pretty decent sized platform and took it public as as one of the first single family rental REITs. My co-founders and I sort of realized of Roofstock sort of realized um, that there was a real opportunity to build a real marketplace and investment platform in single family rentals to take advantage of all this new interest in investing directly in housing. And so for me, it was an interesting opportunity to sort of see a market opportunity to really develop a platform to create better access, lower friction, um, you know, it, just a, a better way of transacting homes with tenants in them rather than having to vacate them and sell them through traditional means. We could squeeze out a lot of costs and the time and the pain um, that actually had a very good value proposition for both buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, it was a combination of kind of seeing a business opportunity, having some skills and experience that I thought could apply themselves quite well to this and then being at the point in my life where I wanted to dive in and and start something from scratch as sort of a you know sort of a personal objective it's it's not something I'd done previously I'd been early 
as you know, at a couple of companies, but this was the first one where I was actually a founder. And, and that mm-hmm. was from a personal standpoint, uh, a goal. So all those things sort of lined up nicely back in 2015 when I took the leap and, and started Roofstock. So, so you mentioned by the fact that you had skills in there and, and you did work at Waypoint Homes, which uh, from what I know, they were into acquiring, renovating and leasing a large portfolio of rental homes, uh, I think in multiple yes. markets around the country. How, how did that role play into, into uh, starting Roofstock? Of course, from, I mean, you were, you were the CEO there and you yeah. were one of the founders here. Yeah. So, um, well, we learned a lot uh, doing it at some scale. We had many thousands of homes that we had purchased one at a time, mm-hmm. renovated and leased and managed. And we built some technology around that to, to do it at scale. And it, what, what became clear is there's some real advantages to, to applying technology to a lot of the problems in this space. And we thought, you know, I guess that if we created a platform that people could plug into and utilize, it made a lot more sense than everybody having to do all the work themselves. And it's a little bit like the thought of cloud computing and you know, where you, you plug into uh, a Salesforce or an AWS and you kind of rent their platform and their, their software stays up to date. You don't need your own hardware. You sort of rely on mm-hmm. best in class solution to, to execute. And that's kind of, the original vision of Roofstock, if we could build this infrastructure that people could rent rather than have to buy, they could then use it and, and gain access to this asset class. So, um, so it, you know, it was really, I think, an interesting way for me to combine my interest in real estate and technology in a way that kind of solves and addresses some real business problems. So we weren't really trying to create technology for technology's sake, but really to address uh, real pain points in the market. And, and that's an interesting point, Gary, is, is something that uh, I believe in as well, is that we we see a lot of startups, or at least see a lot of, uh, I mean, want-to-be founders who are building technology, which a lot of time <laughs> when I see it, I see it as it sound, I mean, this is a good tech, but what problem does it really solve? It sounds exactly. more like tech for tech, tech's sake. And, and it's, it's great to see that, um, I mean, Silicon Valley building companies like Roofstock, where it's not just for that it's here another piece of cool technology, but it's really solving like a $2 trillion problem, so to say. I mean, that's that's probably the market size that you're looking at. Exactly. So um, let's, let's uh, talk about the recent raise, which of course made headlines <laughs> everywhere. It was a huge raise. I mean, the Roofstock raised $240 million valuing the company, I think at around 2 billion plus or minus. Um, there, um, talk about the, the latest financing round. I mean, what, uh, what really brought that kind of financing round? What are your, what are your plans with that is because uh, Roofstock has been on a very fast growth already. Uh, where do you see yourself going? You're one of the only few players. I mean, as far as I know, probably the only player, if not one out of two, operating at this scale in this market. So, um, so yeah, where did where did the, the raise come from, and and what where do you see uh, Roofstock investing some of that money going forward? Well, we really decided last fall that we wanted to a raise around of financing is for, for a, a few reasons, but um, 
really the the, the business uh, experienced some really uh, significant growth last year, and we felt like it was the time to really um, sort of double down and invest in the future. And um, the capital markets were it, you know were good and, mm-hmm. and receptive to prop tech. Um, certainly, then the, the market's a little bit tougher now, but we we could talk about we could talk about that. But mm-hmm. but certainly in the winter, fall winter, when we put this deal together, it ha- came together really quickly uh, over the course of about four to six weeks. Um, we um, talked to investors, went out to a small number, um, SoftBank being one of them, who we ended up signing the term sheet with, and mm-hmm. then doing a first closing before the end of the year. So really. Um, we we went out to the market in mid October, signed a term sheet in mid November, um, and closed by the end of December, and then did a final closing, really um, uh, sort of right on the eve, or a, a few days actually into the invasion in Ukraine, which was you know quite yeah. fascinating time to be closing a large round of financing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, so. Um, but um, you know, so for us, we we initially went out to raise less money. Um, what we what we you know, to date we had raised about 150 million up and before this round, and we were thinking we would raise maybe 100, maybe 150. Mm-hmm. And as we started talking to some of the larger crossover investors and and companies like SoftBank, there was a desire for them to put more money to work. And so it made us think, did we want to do a smaller round or if we did a larger round, what would we do with that money and why would we raise that much more money? And and what we came to the conclusion that at this part in the cycle, um, more money is probably better than less money. It gives us more flexibility to lean in uh, to growth. It gives us money for mergers and acquisitions. So we could do some M&A selectively. We've done a couple in the past using only stock because we never had a ton of cash. Now this gives us an ability to be a bit, little bit more flexible for acquisitions. We could really lean into our hiring. Um, we're, we're, we're hiring a lot of engineers, data scientists, product people. We're starting to spend more money in marketing. So some of the things that we hadn't done so much early um, we now had plenty of balance sheet to do. And, and, um, and so it's really kind of giving us more flexibility to build a bit more of a competitive mode around the business. And we think we could be opportunistic during this uh, bit of a, a bit of a reset in the market. Obviously we've seen public market um, yes. comparable straight down interest rates are going up. So there's, there's a little bit of a pause in the market here. Um, but what that does allow us to do is to be opportunistic and, and continue to grow, hopefully through this cycle, hire really good people, make investments that will pay off, um, not just over the short term, but over the medium and long term. Um, so all of those things, it bodes well to have a strong balance sheet kind of going into a market that might be a little bit unsettled, which is which is where we are today. Um but um, you know, as you know, as as a marketplace, we can be we we can um, be quite busy, and in, in many parts of our business thrive in an up market or a down market. Is we're we're helping bring buyers and sellers together and provide services in our platform. 
for owners to help them optimize their performance. Mm-hmm. So, so it, you know, we, we I think will continue to be equally, if not more relevant, as the market uh, kind of works through some, you know, maybe some speed bumps here over the upcoming quarters. Um, and so it, it's just it's nice to be able to to uh, you know, think about being on offense a little bit when I think perhaps a lot of companies are going to, by, by necessity, be a little bit more on defense here in the near term. Makes sense. And that that brings me uh, to a question that, that gets very typically asked is, uh, especially for some of my listeners who are, who are thinking about raising capital, is there are two schools of thought. One is that uh, if you're getting the money, then then take it, because you never know you could you could run into a problem where where the markets pause or they're not as excited about your industry or, or company as before. Or the other school of thought is that I mean, raise only as much as you need. I mean, what's the re- what's the reason to raise more if you can probably raise at probably a better valuation down the road? And yeah. so this is not, of course, a, a rooftop question, but more because of course you you completely thought through what you want to do with that. That money, but somebody who's listening and may not be sure which route to go based on your experience, Gary. What kind of advice will you give to to a listener like that? Yeah, it's a very personal question, and and uh, I'm going to evade it slightly by saying it really does depend, but it does, um, and it depends. There's lots of great ways to approach this. Um, I I have I know friends who have bootstrap things, raised very little money, and um, kept most of the company for themselves, grown slower, but but controlled their own destiny and done quite well. I also have friends who have done that, not raised very much money, and gotten uh, lapped by competitors who did, mm-hmm. or got to a place where they, they were then at a point in the capital markets where they could not raise money on good terms and could not be successful. So I personally have a bias towards overcapitalizing the company a bit, raising okay. a bit more money than you feel like you need to create that, that safety net. Now, you do create a bit more dilution. Um, so um, you have to be comfortable that p- perhaps you're giving up um, some owner, more ownership than you need, but I do think it creates a little bit of um, a security and creates a little bit of a safety net. And if uh, what I, my overall conclusion is, very few entrepreneurs who are successful and have a successful exit think back and say, "Gosh, I wish I had raised less money along the way. <laughs> Maybe I'd have a little bit more." Because what it does is it increases the likelihood or the probability of a successful outcome by having this additional cushion on the balance sheet. So that's my personal bias. Um, But again, it's a personal decision and it really does depend on circumstances. Sure, absolutely makes sense. Um, Switching gears to the the single family rental market itself, where given given the rise in interest rates that we have seen, we are now what at the highest level that we have been in almost a decade now. Um, yep. Where where do you see the market going, and how does that impact, uh, say, roof stock, and in in where do you see your growth heading? Yeah, so um, we're watching it closely. Um, clearly, rates have jumped up. Um, Oh, 150 basis points, uh, roughly over the last couple of months. Um, 
we have not seen marketplace activity negatively affected, hmm. which is interesting. Um, we, we were definitely in conversations with investors all the time. Some of the institutions are kind of thinking, wondering if there's going to be a reset in pricing. Should they be a little bit more cautious in their bidding? So it, it's nat- a natural time for everyone to think about their investment strategies, especially those reliant very heavily on debt, um, because those, you can borrow less and it's more expensive. The, the counterbalance seems to be, as people are thinking about real estate broadly, and, and single-family rentals perhaps being a piece of that strategy. If you're looking at other sort of real estate, you 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 have the same impact from rising interest rates, but you might not have some of the positive macro elements of investing in housing that that kind of perhaps offset some of the negatives of the rising rates. And that's in particular, um, it's a housing tends to be quite a good inflation hedge, mm-hmm. rental housing. Because as you know, you could raise rents every year to keep pace with inflation or perhaps a little bit more. And we've certainly seen rents going up, at least in line with inflation, generally a little bit higher. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a positive. If you're in a long-term lease and some type of other property, you might not have that same flexibility. And so if you do worry about being in an inflationary environment and you're sitting in cash, um, it's costing you, you know, seven or eight percent a year to sit in yeah. cash relative to being, say, in housing. So we're we're seeing more investors thinking about buying things with all equity or let perhaps a little bit less leverage. There's there's a tried and true strategy, as you know, uh, If you buy when rates are a little bit higher and yeah. refinance when rates are lower, yeah. it's it could be a good strategy. Um, so we're already starting to have some some of those conversations. Um, so and, and then also you have input costs, inflationary um, elements in fact affecting both labor and materials. So the replacement cost of homes is going up. That tends to sort of provide price support and kind of push push home prices up. So so while you do have interest rates putting downward pressure, I think what it's going to do. And again, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I think home price appreciation rates are going to come down meaningfully, meaning it's not going to be 15, 16, 18% year over year. You're going to get down into the single digit. But I, but I, I still think we're going to see price growth. I don't foresee, and again, I, I could be wrong, but I don't foresee significant absolute price declines. Um, but I do think the rate of increase will go down dramatically. And I think that's a, that's a healthy thing. Yeah, that, that's a very healthy thing. I mean, you don't want a real estate market at what we grew by about 16.9% last year. You don't, yeah. you don't yeah. want year in and year out to the point where it becomes affordable only to top 2%. That's what I think happened to Canadian markets um, uh, at some point in time where only the top 2 or 3% of the country could could kind of afford the the, the real estate prices. So totally makes sense. And then, uh, especially in the rental space, I mean, even though inflation wasn't as high last year as it is now, I mean, we still saw double digit growth in, in, in rental prices. So it's still yeah. a great time for a real estate investor to come in. And even if you get say five, five and a half percent interest rate, the good thing is that that's 30 year fixed. Your payment does not change while the rent keeps going up if the inflation keeps rising. And if it doesn't, then at some point of time, the rate will go down. And as you rightly said, you could still refinance. So they get really 
the best of both worlds, so to say, is because they could still have the the rent going up if the inflation goes up, while their their rate, yeah. rate still stays the same. So, I think that's what the investors should be considering, not just the immediate impact of of what's happening, but the long term still makes makes real sense. Yeah, there, I I played golf with someone yesterday who's a longtime investor, mm-hmm. and he said the first loan that he took out was at twenty one percent. Back in the, I, I think he said it was the early '80s, but um, it's it's hard to imagine for so many people. We, we've been used to such low rates, and um, but you know, historically, obviously, there have been times when rates were lots higher, but people still transacted, and um, so it's we yeah, have to keep historical perspective in mind. No, absolutely, I was actually. Uh, doing a keynote for an event a couple of weeks back and I was actually tracking the interest rate movements with with real estate prices and it's surprising that the correlation is it's so small is that when your friend bought that home at 21% where the owner occupied rates were about 18 19% the median home prices were still increasing believe it or not so so when people yeah. see 5% rate and think that the market crash is imminent history shows that that's that's not the case well, I remember back when when we took Zip Realty public back in what is 2004, we did a bunch of research for the IPO and went back about 30 or 40 years. And up through that time, there had never been an absolute price decline nationally in home prices, irrespective of interest rate fluctuations, as you pointed out. Now, we did see that for five years during the Great Recession, right, from 2007 mm-hmm. through 2011. But prior to that, and you've had regional drops for sure that had tend to be driven by local economies, uh, regional economies. But it's it is quite fascinating to see how resilient prices have have been. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun to, to look at the data. And, and the other thing that it's that is lacks correlation is um, single family rental uh, home prices versus the stock market. So that's another thing that is also quite interesting is there's there's not a strong correlation, if any, there. So you get this, it's less volatile and it also lacks correlation to the equity market. So that's another reason investors uh, who might be concerned perhaps about a, a major stock market correction, looking at housing as a place of relative safety, not absolute safety necessarily, but relative safety relative to other asset classes where you could have you could have, if you want investment exposure no yeah that's uh, that's so true i mean this is something we have i mean in, in psychology we have something called recency bias so mm-hmm. i've seen the crisis of 2008 9 10 but but you're yeah. right i mean i i you probably went even farther back but i i tracked markets since 74 75 and there hasn't been one housing crash one in, right. in the last 50 years other than than to, that 2008-2009. So uh, that's just, that's amazing for, for an asset class to not have more than one crash in 50 years. It's just, just crazy to think about it. It is. It really is. So switching gears as, as we come to the last few minutes uh, of this podcast, which has been highly interesting so far, uh, Gary, is... Um, a lot of lot of my my listeners and, and people in audience are um, early uh, startup founders thinking about starting a company. So of course, 
haven't built a $2 billion company that you have, which <laughs> only a few hundred in the world have, so to say, uh, from, from a non-public company perspective. But um, tell us about some lessons, not just from Roofstock, but I mean, you have been a serial entrepreneur. You have done this before. Uh, you have also served as CEOs at other companies, even if you were not founders there. So you, of course, carry a huge amount of experience, both from running organizations and founding organizations. Um, tell me a couple of things that have worked for you and a couple that you've learned from and, and, and hasn't worked really well. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, one of the things we, we chatted about earlier was, you know, make sure you're solving a real problem. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and that's important because um, that that's the best way to get something going. And you have to have be solving a, a pain point. Um, and I would say also just because someone hasn't done it doesn't mean it's not a good idea. It, it, I, I know a lot of people when we're starting starting Roofstock, people are like, this seems to make a ton of sense. Why hasn't anyone done it? <laughs> and, and so just don't take that as a negative. I mean, when we were buying homes during the downturn in 2009, people were saying we're crazy. Um, but it, it just, it doesn't, my point is have conviction around what you're doing. And just because someone hasn't done it yet doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess another thing, I guess, in just thinking about this, I mean, um, I would say kind of you're, you're building your business, kind of keep your head down, but your eyes up. So, and I, but what I mean by that is you have to focus on execution. There's a lot of work to do, uh, you know, to get these things going, but I think you still have to keep your eyes up and look at what's going on and what might be changing and be willing to react to changing market conditions or opportunities and not mm-hmm. say so set steadfast in in your original business plan. It's very, very hard to have an original business plan that is robust enough to be where the business ends up. So you have to have a starting point. And I like to say, I've said this to my team, when you're building a business, it's a lot more like jazz than playing sheet music. <laughs> you, have your, you have your sheet music and you could write a beautiful, uh, you know, a, a beautiful piece of music, but once things start to change, you need to start riffing. And if you continue playing that same music as everyone else is going a different direction, it's not going to work. And so be willing to kind of be on the, the balls of your feet and, and react to as, as things, as things change. Um, and I, I, you know, and I would say that that's one mistake that I think entrepreneurs make. They get so much conviction around their original idea. Mm-hmm. They start yep. to ignore signal they might be saying, hey, maybe that's not working. Maybe this is what you should be doing. But they want to show conviction around their idea. And, and it is a hard thing is to kind of know when to pivot or expand your vision based on, on market conditions. And that, that, again, there's no right or wrong answer. You kind of know it when you see it. But I would say be data-driven. Um, a lot of times we can be maybe too emotionally attached to, to um, what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think be data driven is is very very important because you're right. You all of us, and I've been I've been guilty of that in the past as well. Is you get so emotionally attached to the idea, and and the more the more you don't give up, so to say, the more more conviction you have that that this is going to work. I just need to need to keep working at it while the data points to a completely different trend. But but it's not easy. I mean, you you have been able to do it, Carrie, but 
but it's not easy for most people no, to start it, their it's, own company. It's not easy. Now, I guess the only other thing that pops to mind would be for entrepreneurs out there, and it relates a little bit to your, your question about how much money should you raise. And, mm-hmm. and I would say equally, if not more important as to how much you raise is who you raise it from. Yes. And, you know, in, we it, do they have, do you have alignment in, in what you want to do with the business? Uh, are, do you have the same values? Are they going to be there when times aren't perfect? Are they going to be supportive? So raising money, all, I like to say all capital is not created equal. And think about it when, when it, going through a tough time, are these people you want on the, uh, around the table with you trying to solve the hard problems? And um, so that it, I would say several times in our evolution, the, the, the groups we've raised money from who have led the rounds were not the highest valuation. And but wow. they, they were the right investors at the time in our estimation, people we wanted to add to the board or had strategic value to us. And then I guess the final thing I would say, I'm a big culture guy. And I think that it's really critical if you're going to build a su- successful company to establish a, a culture that is authentic early on and and really, really build on that because it's really hard. It, absent that, if you're just hiring a collection of individuals and there's no sort of common, um, you know, com, common set of rules and norms that you start to develop around, it's just it's really really hard to manage. And uh, we we tend we we gravitated toward a culture that was high performing, but I wanted to hire good people who are good teammates who wanted to work together, wanted to have fun, wanted to build something, and but a positive culture where we weren't always necessarily hiring just the best athlete. And I would say it, it, we, we sort of have a no, no jerks policy and not that, you know, jerks aren't very, can very, um, uh, and we use more colorful language than that, but not on a podcast, <laughs> perhaps. But, but, but no, we want people who are going to be good people. And I think that, a collection of, of people. That's why a, a team is always going to be a collection of all-stars who don't play well together. Yeah. And, and so, so we're building a team. And so, and I just had the luxury of sort of setting the culture early and want to hire people. I like spending time with and who, and you build that trust. I think when you have the, the really high performing jerk, it you 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 yes can get great individual contributions, but the collective performance will not be as good, and I don't think you'll get the same sort of outcome. Very wise words. Um, thanks, Gary. Thanks for thanks for being part of its audience. What probably we we heard from Gary is that he started by by talking about the fact that don't build tech just for the tech's sake. Uh, try to solve a problem that that actually exists. Uh, in your marketplace, that's what Roof Stock did. Uh, he talked about the fact that whenever possible, in most cases, um, the raise as much capital as you gain, because in, in most cases, again, he qualified that, in most cases, it, it, it will work to your advantage. Um, he t- talked about some of his, some of his entrepreneurial uh, lessons that he has learned. And finally, Gary talked about culture of how you want to build it early 
you want to build it with with people who are really passionate about what you are building and want to be part of it instead of trying to hire superstars who have, who have huge egos, great performers, but probably will not work for the culture of the team long term. So uh, that was brilliant. Thank you so much, Gary, for, for coming on the podcast here. Um, I'm sure I really, really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure our audience is going to love it. So thanks much. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Shashank Redemption with your host, Shashank Shekhar. Be sure to follow, subscribe, and review us. And check out shashankredemption.com to connect with me.